0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ken Reads the Classics. We continue now with Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Chapter 18, His Mark. As we were walking down the end of the wharf towards the ship, Queequeg carrying his harpoon, Captain Peleg, in his gruff voice, loudly hailed us from his wigwam, saying he had not suspected my friend was a cannibal and furthermore announcing that he let no cannibals on board that craft unless they previously produced their papers. What do you mean by that, Captain Peleg, said I, now jumping on the bulwarks and leaving my comrade standing on the wharf? I mean, he replied, he must show his papers. Yes, said Captain Bildad in his hollow voice, sticking his head from behind Peleg's out of the wigwam. He must show that he's converted, son of darkness, he added, turning to Queequeg. Art thou at present in communion with any Christian church? Why, said I, he's a member of the First Congregational Church. Here be it said that many tattooed savages sailing in Nantucket ships at last come to be converted into the churches. First Congregational Church, cried Bildad. What? that worships in Deacon Deuteronomy Coleman's meeting house. And so saying, taking out his spectacles, he rubbed them with his great yellow bandana handkerchief and putting them on very carefully and leaning stiffly over the bulwarks, took a good long look at Queequeg. How long hath he been a member? He then said, turning to me, not very long, I rather guess, young man. no said peleg and he hasn't been baptized right either or it would have washed some of that devil's blue off his face do tell now cried bildad is this philistine a regular member of deacon deuteronomy's meeting i never saw him going there and i pass it every lord's day i don't know anything about deacon deuteronomy or his meeting said i All I know is that Queequeg here is a born member of the First Congregational Church. He is a deacon himself, Queequeg is. Young man, said Bildad sternly, thou art skylarking with me. Explain thyself, thou young Hittite, what church dost thee mean? Answer me. Finding myself thus hard pushed, I replied, I mean, sir, the same ancient Catholic church to which you and I and Captain Peleg there and Queequeg here and all of us and every mother, son and soul of us belong. The great and everlasting first congregation of this whole worshiping world. We all belong to that. Only some of us cherish some queer crochets, no ways touching the grand belief. In that, we all join hands. Splice! Thou mean'st splice hands, cried Peleg, drawing near. Young man, you'd better ship for a missionary instead of a foremast hand. I never heard a better sermon. Deacon Deuteronomy, why Father Mapple himself couldn't beat it, and he's reckoned something. Come aboard, come aboard. Never mind about the papers. I say, tell Quahog there, what's that you call him? Tell Quahog to step along by the great anchor what a harpoon he's got there. And he handles it about right, I say, Cohog or whatever your name is. Did you ever stand in the head of a whaleboat? Did you ever strike a fish? Without saying a word, Queequeg, in his wild sort of way, jumped upon the bulwarks from thence into the bows of one of the whale boats hanging to the side, and then bracing his left knee and poising his harpoon, he cried out in some way such as this, Cap'n, you see him small drop tar on water there. You see him well, s'posing him one way eye. Well den and taking sharp aim at it, he darted the iron right over old Bildad's broad brim, clean across the ship's deck, and struck the glistening tar spot out of sight. Now said Queequeg quietly, hauling in the line. Sposey him whaley, I. Why, dad whaley dead. Quick, build dad, said Peleg, his partner who, aghast at the f- close vicinity of the flying harpoon, had retreated towards the cabin gangway. Quick, I say, you Bildad, and get the ship's papers. We must have hedgehog there. I mean quahog. In one of our boats, look ye, Quahog, we'll give ye the 19th lay, and that's more than ever was given a harpooner yet out of Nantucket. So down we went to the cabin, and to my great joy, Queequeg was soon enrolled among the same ship's company to which I myself belonged. When all the preliminaries were over, and Peleg had got everything ready for signing, he turned to me and said, I guess Quahog there don't know how to write, does he? I say, Quahog, ye, dost thou sign thy name or make thy mark? But at this question, Queequeg, who had twice or thrice before taken part in similar ceremonies, looked no ways abashed, but taking the offered pen, copied upon the paper, in the proper place, an exact counterpart of a queer round figure which was tattooed upon his arm, so that through Captain Peleg's obstinate mistake touching his appellative, it stood something like this. Kohog, his ex-mark. Meanwhile, Captain Bildad sat earnestly and steadfastly eyeing Queequeg, and at last, rising solemnly and fumbling in the huge pockets of his broad-skirted drab coat, took out a bundle of tracks and, selecting one entitled The Latter Day Coming or No Time to Lose, placed it in Queequeg's hands And then, grasping them and the book with both his, looked earnestly into his eyes and said, Son of darkness, I must do my duty by thee. I am part owner of this ship and feel concerned for the souls of all its crew. If thou still clingest to thy pagan ways, which I sadly fear, I beseech thee, remain not for I a Belial bondsman. Spurn the idle bell and the hideous dragon, Turn from the wrath to come. Mind thine eye, I say. Oh, goodness gracious, steer clear of the fiery pit. Something of the salt sea yet lingered in old Bildad's language, heterogeneously mixed with scriptural and domestic phrases. Avast there, avast there, Bildad. Avast now, spoiling our harpooner, cried Peleg. Pious harpooners never make good voyagers. It takes the shark out of them. No harpooner is worth a straw who ain't pretty sharkish. There was young Nat Swain, once the bravest boatheader out of all Nantucket and the vineyard. He joined the meeting and never came to good. He got so frightened about his plaguey soul that he shrank and sheered away from whales for fear of afterclaps in case he got stove and went to Davy Jones. Peleg, Peleg, said Bildad, lifting his eyes and hands. Thou thyself, as I myself, hast seen many a perilous time. Knowest, Peleg, what it is to have the fear of death? How then canst thou prate in this ungodly guise? Thou beliest thine own heart, Peleg. Tell me, when this same Pequod here had her three masts overboard in that typhoon on Japan, that same voyage when thou went mate with Captain Ahab, didst thou not think of death and the judgment then? Hear him, hear him now, cried Peleg, marching across the cabin and thrusting his hands far down into his pockets. Hear him, all of ye. Think of that, when every moment we thought the ship would sink, death and the judgment then, what, with all three masts making such an everlasting thunder against the side and every sea breaking over us, fore and aft, think of death and the judgment then, no, No time to think about death then. Life was what Captain Ahab and I was thinking of, and how to save all hands, how to rig jury masts, how to get into the nearest port. That was what I was thinking of. Bildad said no more, but buttoning up his coat, stalked on deck where we followed him. There he stood, very quietly overlooking some sailmakers who were mending a topsail in the waist. Now and then he stooped to pick up a patch or save an end of tarred twine, which otherwise might have been wasted. Chapter 19, The Prophet Shipmates, have ye shipped in that ship? Queequeg and I had just left the Pequod and were sauntering away from the water. For the moment, each occupied with his own thoughts when the above words were put to us by a stranger who, pausing before us, leveled his massive forefinger at the vessel in question. He was but shabbily apparelled in faded jacket and patched trousers, a rag of a black handkerchief investing his neck, a confluent smallpox had in all directions flowed over his face and left it like the complicated ribbed bed of a torrent when the rushing waters have been dried up. "'Have ye shipped in her?' he repeated. You mean the ship Pequod, I suppose, said I, trying to gain a little more time for an uninterrupted look at him. Aye, the Pequod, that ship there, he said, drawing back his whole arm and then rapidly shoving it straight out from him with the fixed bayonet of his pointed finger darted full at the object. Yes, I said, we have just signed the articles. Anything down there about your souls? About what? Oh, perhaps you haven't got any, he said quickly. No matter, though, I know many chaps that haven't got any. Good luck to them, and they are all the better off for it. A soul's a sort of fifth wheel to a wagon. What are you jabbering about, shipmate, said I. He's got enough, though, to make up for all deficiencies of that sort in other chaps, abruptly said the stranger, placing a nervous emphasis on the word he Quag, said I, let's go. This fellow has broken loose from somewhere. He's talking about something and somebody we don't know. Stop, cried the stranger. Ye said true. Ye haven't seen old thunder yet, have ye? Who's old thunder, said I again, riveted with the insane earnestness of his manner. Captain Ahab. What? The captain of our ship, the Pequod? Aye, among some of us old sailor chaps, he goes by that name. Ye haven't seen him yet, have ye? No, we haven't. No, we haven't. He's sick, they say, but is getting better and will be all right again before long. All right again before long, laughed the stranger with a solemnly derisive sort of laugh. Look ye, when Captain Ahab is all right "'then this left arm of mine will be all right, not before. "'What do you know about him? "'What did they tell you about him? "'Say that. "'They didn't tell much of anything about him, "'only I've heard that he's a good whale hunter "'and a good captain to his crew. "'That's true, that's true, yes, both true enough.' But you must jump when he gives an order. Step and growl, growl and go. That's the word with Captain Ahab. But nothing about that thing that happened to him off Cape Horn long ago when he lay like dead for three days and nights. Nothing about that deadly scrimmage with the Spaniard afore the altar in Santa. Heard nothing about that day. Nothing about the silver calabash he spat into. And nothing about his losing his leg last voyage, according to the prophecy? Didn't ye hear a word about them matters and something more, eh? No, I don't think ye did. How could ye? Who knows it? Not all Nantucket, I guess. But howsoever mayhap ye've heard tell about the leg and how he lost it, I ye have heard of that, I dare say. Oh yes, that everyone knows a must. I mean, they know he's only one leg, and that a Parma said he took the other off. My friend, said I, what all this gibberish of yours is about, I don't know, and I don't much care, for it seems to me that you must be a little damaged in the head. But if you are speaking of Captain Ahab, of that ship there, the Pequod, then let me tell you that I know all about the loss of his leg. All about it, eh? Eh? Sure you do. All? Pretty sure. With finger pointed and eye leveled at the Pequod, the beggar-like stranger stood a moment, as if in a troubled reverie, then starting a little, turned and said, Ye've shipped, have ye? Names down on the papers? Well, well, what's signed is signed, and what's to be will be, and then again, perhaps it won't be, after all. Anyhow, it's all fixed and arranged already, and some sailors or other must go with him, I suppose. As well as these, as any other men, God pity em. Morning to ye shipmates, morning. The ineffable heavens bless ye. I'm sorry I stopped ye. Look here, friend, said I. If you have anything important to tell us, out with it. But if you are only trying to bamboozle us, you are mistaken in your game. That's all I have to say. And it's said very well, and I like to hear a chap talk up that way. You are just the man for him. The likes of ye, morning to ye, shipmates, morning. Oh, when ye get there, tell him I've concluded not to make one of them. Ah, my dear fellow, you can't fool us that way. You can't fool us. It is the easiest thing in the world for a man to look as if he had a great secret in him. Morning to ye shipmates. Morning. Morning it is, said I. Come along, Queequeb. Let's leave this crazy man. But stop. Tell me your name, will you? Elijah. Elijah, thought I, and we walked away, both commenting after each other's fashion upon this ragged old sailor, and agreed that he was nothing but a humbug trying to be a bugbear. But we had not perhaps gone a hundred yards when chancing to turn a corner and looking back as I did so, who should be seen but Elijah following us, though at a distance. Somehow the sight of him struck me so that I said nothing to Queequeg of his being behind, but passed on with my comrade, anxious to see whether the stranger would turn the same corner that we did. He did. He did. And then it seemed to me that he was dogging us, but with what intent I could not for the life of me imagine. This circumstance, coupled with his ambiguous, half-hinting, half-revealing, shrouded sort of talk, now begat in me all kinds of vague wonderments and half-apprehensions, and all connected with the Pequod and Captain Ahab, and the leg he lost, and the cape horn fit, and the silver calabash, and what Captain Peleg had said of him, and when I left the ship the day previous, and the prediction of the squaw Tistig, and the voyage we had bound ourselves to sail, and a hundred other shadowy things. I was resolved to satisfy myself whether this ragged Elijah was really dogging us or not, and with that intent crossed the way with Quequeg, and on that side of it retraced our steps. But Elijah passed on without seeming to notice us, This relieved me, and once more, and finally, as it seemed to me, I pronounced him in my heart a humbug. Chapter 20 All Astir A day or two passed, and there was great activity aboard the Pequod. Not only were the sails being mended, but new sails were coming on board, and bolts of canvas, and coils of rigging. In short, everything betokened that the ship's preparations were hurrying to a close. Captain Peleg seldom or never went ashore, but sat in his wigwam, keeping a sharp lookout upon the hands. Bildad did all the purchasing and providing at the stores, and the men employed in the hold and on the rigging were working till long after nightfall. On the day following Queequeg signing the articles, word was given at all the inns where the ship's company were stopping that their chest must be on board before night, for there was no telling how soon the vessel might be sailing. So Queequeg and I got down our traps, resolving, however, to sleep ashore till the last. But it seems they always give very little notice in these cases, and the ship did not sail for several days. But no wonder, there was a good deal to be done, and there is no telling how many things to be thought of before the Pequod was fully equipped. Everyone knows what a multitude of things, beds, saucepans, knives and forks, shovels and tongs, napkins, nutcrackers, and whatnot, are indispensable to the business of housekeeping. Just so with whaling, which necessitates a three years housekeeping upon the wide ocean, far from all grocers, costermongers, doctors, bakers, and bankers. And though this also holds true of merchant vessels, yet not by any means to the same extent as with whalemen. For besides the great length of the whaling voyage, the numerous articles peculiar to the prosecution of the fishery, and the impossibility of replacing them at the remote harbors usually frequented, it must be remembered that of all ships, whaling vessels are the most exposed to accidents of all kinds, and especially to the destruction and loss of the very things upon which the success of the voyage most depends. Hence, the spare boats, spare spars, and spare lines and harpoons, and spare everythings almost, but a spare captain and duplicate ship. At the period of our arrival at the island, the heaviest storage of the Pequod had been almost completed, comprising her beef, bread, water, fuel, and iron hoops and staves. But as before hinted, for some time there was a continual fetching and carrying on board of divers' odds and ends of things, both large and small. Chief among those who did this fetching and carrying was Captain Bildad's sister, a lean old lady of a most determined and defatigable spirit, but withal very kind-hearted who seemed resolved that, if she could help it, Nothing should be found wanting in the Pequod, after once fairly getting to see. At one time she would come on board with a jar of pickles for the steward's pantry, another time with a bunch of quills for the chief mate's desk where he kept his log, a third time with a roll of flannel for the small of some one's rheumatic back. Never did any woman better deserve her name, which was Charity Aunt Charity, as everybody called her. And like a sister of charity, did this charitable Aunt Charity bustle about hither and thither, ready to turn her hand and heart to anything that promised to yield safety, comfort, and consolation to all on board a ship in which her beloved brother Bildad was concerned, and in which she herself owned a score or two of well-saved dollars. But it was startling to see this excellent-hearted Quakeress coming on board, as she did the last day with a long oil ladle in one hand and a still longer whaling lance in the other. Nor was Bildad himself, nor Captain Peleg, at all backward. As for Bildad, he carried about with him a long list of the articles needed, and at every fresh arrival down went his mark opposite that article upon the paper. Every once in a while, Peleg came hobbling out of his whalebone den, roaring at the men down the hatchways, roaring up to the riggers at the masthead, and then concluded by roaring back into his wigwam. During these days of preparation, Queequeg and I often visited the craft, and as often I asked about Captain Ahab and how he was and when he was going to come on board his ship, to these questions they would answer that he was getting better and better and was expected aboard every day. Meantime, the two captains, Peleg and Bildad, could attend to everything necessary to fit the vessel for the voyage. If I had been downright honest with myself, I would have seen very plainly in my heart that I did but half fancy being committed this way to so long a voyage, without once laying my eyes on the man who was to be the absolute dictator of it, so soon as the ship sailed out upon the ocean sea. But when a man suspects any wrong, it sometimes happens that if he be already involved in the matter, He insensibly tries to cover up his suspicions even from himself. And much this way it was with me. I said nothing and tried to think nothing. At last it was given out that sometime next day the ship would certainly sail. So next morning, Queequeg and I took a very early start. Chapter 21, Going Aboard It was nearly six o'clock, but only gray and perfect misty dawn when we drew nigh the wharf. There are some sailors running ahead there, if I see right, said I to Queequeg. It can't be some shadows. She's off by sunrise, I guess. Come on. Avast, cried a voice whose owner at the same time coming close behind us laid a hand upon both our shoulders and then insinuating himself between us. "'stood stooping forward a little in the uncertain twilight, "'strangely peering from Queequeg to me. "'It was Elijah. "'Going aboard?' "'Hands off, will you?' said I. Looky here,' said Queequeg, shaking himself. "'Go away!' "'Ain't goin' aboard, then?' "'Yes, we are,' said I. "'But was business is that of yours?' "'Do you know, Mr. Elijah, that I consider you a little impertinent?' "'No, no, no. I wasn't aware of that,' said Elijah, "'slowly and wonderingly looking from me to Queequeg "'with the most unaccountable glances. "'Elijah,' said I, "'you will oblige my friend and me by withdrawing. "'We are going to the Indian and Pacific Oceans "'and would prefer not to be detained. be, be ye,' Coming back before breakfast? He's cracked, Queequeg, said I. Come on. Hollowa, cried Elijah, hailing us when we had removed a few paces. Never mind him, said I. Queequeg, come on. But he stole up to us again and suddenly, clapping his hands on my shoulder, said, Did you see anything looking like men going towards that ship a while ago? Struck by this plain, matter-of-fact question, I answered, saying, Yes, I thought I did see four or five men, but it was too dim to be sure. Very dim, very dim, said Elijah. Morning to ye. Once more we quitted him, but once more he came softly after us, and touching my shoulder again said, See if you can find him now, will ye? Find who? Morning to ye, morning to ye, he rejoined again, moving off. Oh, I was going to warn ye against... But never mind, never mind. It's all one, all in the family too. Sharp frost this morning, ain't it? Goodbye to ye. Shant ye see ye again very soon, I guess, unless it's before the grand jury. And with these cracked words, he finally departed, leaving me for the moment in no small wonderment at his frantic impudence. At last, stepping on board the Pequod, we found everything in profound quiet. Not a soul moving. The cabin entrance was locked within. The hatches were all on and lumbered with coils of rigging. Going forward to the forecastle, we found the slide of the scuttle open. Seeing a light, we went down and found only an old rigger there, wrapped in a tattered pea jacket. He was thrown at whole length upon two chests, his face downwards and enclosed in his folded arms. The profoundest slumber slept upon him. Those sailors we saw, Queequeg, where can they have gone to? said I, looking dubiously at the sleeper. But it seemed that, when on the wharf, Queequeg had not at all noticed what I now alluded to. Hence, I would have thought myself to have been optically deceived in that matter, were it not for Elijah's otherwise inexplicable question. But I beat the thing down, and again, marking the sleeper, jocularly hinted to Queequeg, "'that perhaps we had best sit up with the body, "'telling him to establish himself accordingly. "'He put his hand upon the sleeper's rear "'as though feeling if it was soft enough, "'and then, without more ado, sat quietly down there. "'Gracious Queequeg, don't sit there,' said I. "'Oh, peridude seat,' said Queequeg, "'my country way won't hurt him face.' "'Face,' said I, "'call that his face?' very benevolent countenance then. But how hard he breathes, he's heaving himself. Get off, Queequeg. You are heavy. It's grinding the face of the poor. Get off, Queequeg. Look, he'll twitch you off soon. I wonder he don't wake. Queequeg removed himself to just beyond the head of the sleeper and lighted his tomahawk pipe. I sat at the feet. We kept the pipe passing over the sleeper from one to the other, Meanwhile, upon questioning him in his broken fashion, Quequeg gave me to understand that in his land, owing to the absence of settees and sofas of all sorts, the king, chiefs, and great people generally were in the custom of fattening some of the lower orders for Ottomans. And to furnish a house comfortably in that respect, you had only to buy up eight or ten lazy fellows and lay them round in the piers and alcoves. Besides, it was very convenient on an excursion, much better than those garden chairs which are convertible into walking sticks. Upon occasion, a chief calling his attendant and desiring him to make a settee of himself under a spreading tree, perhaps in some damp, marshy place. While narrating these things, every time Queequeg received the tomahawk from me, he flourished the hatchet side of it over the sleeper's head. What's that for, Queequeg? Perry easy, Killy, oh, Perry easy. He was going on with some wild reminiscences about his tomahawk pipe, which it seemed had in its two uses both brained his foes and soothed his soul. When we were directly attracted to the sleeping rigor, the strong vapor now completely filling the contracted hole, it began to tell upon him. He breathed with a sort of muffledness. Then seemed trouble in the nose. Then revolved over once or twice then sat up and rubbed his eyes. Hello, he breathed at last. Who be ye smokers? Shipped men, answered I. When does she sail? Aye, I, I. ye are going in her. Be ye, she sails today. The captain come aboard last night. What captain? Ahab? Who but him indeed? I was going to ask him some further questions concerning Ahab when we heard a noise on the deck. Halloa, Starbucks astir, said the rigger. He's a lively chief mate, that. Good man and a pious, but all alive now. I must turn, too. And so, saying, he went on deck, and we followed. It was now clear sunrise. Soon the crew came on board in twos and threes. The riggers bestirred themselves. The mates were actively engaged, and several of the shore people were busy in bringing various last things on board. Meanwhile... Captain Ahab remained invisibly enshrined within his cabin. Chapter 22 Merry Christmas At length, towards noon, upon the final dismissal of the ship's riggers, and after the Pequod had been hauled out from the wharf and after the ever-thoughtful Charity had come off in a whale boat with her last gift, a nightcap for Stubb, the second mate, her brother-in-law, and a spare Bible for the steward. After all this, the two captains, Peleg and Bildad, issued from the cabin, and turning to the chief mate, Peleg said, Now, Mr. Starbuck, are you sure everything is right? Captain Ahab is all ready. Just spoke to him. Nothing more to be got from shore, eh? Well, call all hands, then. Muster them aft here, blast em No need of profane words, however great the hurry, Peleg, said Bildad. But away with thee, friend Starbuck, and do our bidding. How now, here upon the very point of starting for the voyage, Captain Peleg and Captain Bildad were going it with a high hand on the quarter deck, just as if they were to be joint commanders at sea, as well as to all appearances in port. And, as for Captain Ahab, no sign of him was yet to be seen, only, they said, he was in the cabin. But then the idea was that his presence was by no means necessary in getting the ship under way and steering her well out to sea. Indeed, as that was not at all his proper business but the pilot's, and as he was not yet completely recovered, so they said, therefore, Captain Ahab stayed below, and all this seemed natural enough, especially as in the merchant ship many captains never show themselves on deck for a considerable time after heaving up the anchor, but remain over the cabin table, having a farewell merrymaking with their shore friends before they quit the ship for good with the pilot. But there was not much chance to think over the matter, for Captain Peleg was now all alive. He seemed to do most of the talking and commanding, and not Bildad. Aft here, ye sons of bachelors, he cried as the sailors lingered at the mainmast. Mr. Starbuck, drive em aft. Strike the tent there, was the next order. As I hinted before, this whalebone marquee was never pitched except in port, and on board the Pequod for thirty years the order to strike the tent was well known to be the next thing to heaving up the anchor. Man the capstan, blood and thunder, jump, was the next command, and the crew sprang for the hand spikes. Now in getting underway, the station generally occupied by the pilot is the forward part of the ship, and here Bildad, who with Peleg be it known, in addition to his other officers, was one of the licensed pilots of the port, he being suspected to have got himself made a pilot in order to save the Nantucket pilot fee, to all the ships he was concerned in, for he never piloted any other craft. Bildad, I say, might now be actively engaged in looking over the bows for the approaching anchor, and at intervals singing what seemed a dismal stave of psalmody to steer the hands at the windlass who roared forth some sort of chorus about the girls in Boobal Alley, with a hearty goodwill. Nevertheless, not three days previous, Bildad had told them that no profane songs would be allowed on board the Pequod, particularly in getting under way. and Charity, his sister, had placed a small choice of copy of Watts in each seaman's berth. Meantime, overseeing the other part of the ship, Captain Peleg ripped and swore astern in the most frightful manner, I almost thought he would sink the ship before the anchor could be got up. Involuntarily I paused on my handspike and told Queequeg to do the same, thinking of the perils we both ran in starting on the voyage which such a devil for a pilot. I was comforting myself however with the thought that in pious Bildad might be found some salvation spite of his 777th lay when I felt a sudden sharp poke in my rear and turning round, was horrified at the apparition of Captain Peleg in the act of withdrawing his leg from my immediate vicinity. That was my first kick. Is that the way they heave in the march and service? He roared. Spring, thou sheephead, spring and break thy backbone. Why don't ye spring, I say, all of ye spring. Spring, Quahog, spring, thou chap with the red whiskers spring there scotch cap spring thou green pants spring i say all of ye and spring your eyes out and so saying he moved along the windlass here and there using his leg very freely while imperturbable bill kept leading off with his psalmody thinks i captain peleg must have been drinking something today at last the anchor was up the sails were set and off we glided it was a short, cold Christmas, and as the short northern day merged into night, we found ourselves almost broad upon the wintry ocean, whose freezing spray cased us in ice as in polished armor. The long rows of teeth on the bulwarks glistened in the moonlight, and like the white ivory tusks of some huge elephant, vast curving icicles depended from the bows. Lank Bildad, as pilot headed the first watch, and ever and anon, as the old craft deep-dived into the green seas and set the shivering frost all over her, and the winds howled, and the cordage rang, his steady notes were heard. Sweet fields beyond the swelling flood stand dressed in living green. So to the Jews old Canaan stood while Jordan rolled between. Never did those sweet words sound more sweetly to me than then. They were full of hope and fruition. Spite of this rigid winter night in the boisterous Atlantic, spite of my wet feet and wetter jacket, there was yet, it then seemed to me, many a pleasant haven in store, and meads and glades so eternally vernal that the grass shot up by the spring, untrodden, unwilted, remains at midsummer. At last we gained such an offing that the two pilots were needed no longer. The stout sailboat that had accompanied us began ranging longside. It was curious and not unpleasing how Peleg and Bildad were affected at this juncture, especially Captain Bildad, for loath to depart, yet very loath to leave for good a ship bound on so long and perilous a voyage beyond both stormy capes. A ship in which some thousands of his hard-earned dollars were invested. A ship in which an old shipmate sailed as captain. A man almost as old as he, once more starting to encounter all the terrors of the pitiless jaw. loath to say goodbye to a thing so every way brimful of every interest to him. Poor old Bildad lingered long. Paced the deck with anxious strides. Ran down into the cabin to speak another farewell word there. Again came on deck and looked to windward. Looked towards the wide and endless waters, only bounded by the far-off unseen eastern continents. Looked towards the land. Looked aloft. Looked right and left. Looked everywhere and nowhere. And at last, mechanically coiling a rope upon its pin, convulsively grasped out Peleg by the hand, and holding up a lantern for a moment stood gazing heroically in his face, as much to say, nevertheless, friend Peleg, I can stand it. Yes, I can. As for Peleg himself, he took it more like a philosopher. But for all his philosophy, there was a tear twinkling in his eye when the lantern came too near. And he too did not a little run from cabin to deck, now a word below, and now a word with Starbuck, the chief mate. But at last he turned to his comrade with a final sort of look about him. Captain Bildad, come. Old shipmate, we must go. Back the main yard there. Boat ahoy. Stand by to come close alongside now. Careful, careful. Come, Bildad boy, say your last. Luck to ye, Starbuck. Luck to ye, Mr. Stubb. Luck to ye, Mr. Flask. "'Good-bye, and good luck to ye all. "'And this day three years I'll have a hot supper "'smokin' for ye in old Nantucket. "'Hurrah, and away! "'God bless ye, and have ye in his holy keeping, men,' "'murmured old Bildad almost incoherently. "'I hope ye will have a fine weather now, "'so that Captain Ahab may soon be moving among ye. "'A pleasant sun is all he needs, "'and ye'll have plenty of them in the tropic voyage ye go.' Be careful in the hunt, ye mates. Don't stave the boats needlessly, ye harpooners. Good quiet cedar plank is raised full three percent within the year. Don't forget your prayers either, Mr. Starbuck. Mind that cooper. Don't waste the spare staves. Oh, the sail needles are in the green locker. Don't wail it too much a Lord's day, men. But don't miss a fair chance either. That's rejecting heaven's good gifts. Have an eye to the molasses, Tears. Mr. Stubb, it was a little leak, I thought. If ye touch the islands, Mr. Flask, beware of fornication. Goodbye, goodbye. Don't keep that cheese too long down in the hold, Mr. Starbuck. It'll spoil. Be careful with the butter. Twenty cents the pound it was. And mind ye, if... Come, come, Captain Bildad. Stop palavering. Away! And with that, Peleg hurried him over the side, and both dropped into the boat. Ship and boat diverged. The cold, damp night breeze blew between. A screaming gull flew overhead. The two hulls wildly rolled. We gave three heavy-hearted cheers and blindly plunged like fate into the lone Atlantic. Chapter 23, The Lee Shore Some chapters back, one Bulkington was spoken of, a tall, new-landed mariner, encountered in New Bedford at the inn. When on that shivering winter's night, the Pequod thrust her vindictive bows into the cold, malicious waves, who should I see standing at her helm but Bulkington? I looked with sympathetic awe and fearfulness upon the man, who in midwinter just landed from four years dangerous voyage, could so unrestingly push off again for still another tempestuous turn. The land seemed scorching to his feet. Wonderfulest things are ever the unmentionable. Deep memories yield no epitaphs. This six-inch chapter is the stoneless grave of Bulkington. Let me only say that it fared with him as with the storm-tossed ship that miserably drives along the leeward land. The port would fain give succor. The port is pitiful. In the port is safety, comfort, hearthstone, supper, warm blankets, friends, and all that's kind to our mortalities. But in that gale, the port, the land, is that ship's direst jeopardy. She must fly all hospitality. One touch of land, though it but graze the keel, Would make her shudder through and through. With all her might she crowds all sail offshore. In so doing fights against the very winds that fain would blow her homeward. Seeks all the last seas landlessness again. For refuge sake forlornly rushing into peril. Her only friend, her bitterest foe. Know ye now, Bulkington. Glimpses do ye seem to see of that mortally intolerable truth that all deep, earnest thinking is but the intrepid effort of the soul to keep the open independence of her sea, while the wildest winds of heaven and earth conspire to cast her on the treacherous, slavish shore. But as in landlessness alone resides the highest truth, shoreless, indefinite, as God, so better it is to perish in that howling infinite than being gloriously dashed upon the lee, even if that were safety. More worm-like, then, oh, who would craven crawl to land? Terrors of the terrible, is all this agony so vain? Take heart, take heart, O oh, Bulkington, bear thee grimly demigod, up from the spray of thy ocean, perishing, straight up leaps thy apotheosis.
1: Chapter 24
0: the Advocate. As Queequeg and I are now fairly embarked in this business of whaling, and as this business of whaling has somehow come to be regarded among landsmen as a rather unpoetical and disreputable pursuit, therefore I am all anxiety to convince ye, ye landsmen, of the injustice hereby done to us hunters of the whales. In the first place, it may be deemed almost superfluous to establish the fact that among people at large, the business of whaling is not accounted on a level with what are called the liberal professions. If a stranger were introduced into any miscellaneous metropolitan society, it would but slightly advance the general opinion of his merits were he presented to the company as a harpooner, say, and if, in emulation of the naval officers, he should append the initials SWF, Sperm Whale Fishery, to his visiting card, such a procedure would be deemed preeminently presuming and ridiculous. Doubtless, one leading reason why the world declines honoring us whalemen is this. They think that, at best, our vocation amounts to a butchering sort of business, and that when actively engaged therein, we are surrounded by all manner of defilements. Butchers we are, that is true, but butchers also, and butchers of the bloodiest badge, have been all martial commanders, whom the world invariably delights to honor. And as for the matter of the alleged uncleanliness of our business, ye shall soon be initiated into certain facts hitherto pretty generally unknown, and which, upon the whole, will triumphantly plant the sperm whale ship, at least among the cleanliness things of this tidy earth. But even granting the charge in question to be true, what disordered slippery decks of a whale ship are comparable to the unspeakable carrion of those battlefields from which so many soldiers return to drink in all ladies' plaudits? And if the idea of peril so much enhances the popular conceit of the soldier's profession— let me assure ye that many a veteran who has freely marched up to a battery would quickly recoil at the apparition of the sperm whale's vast tail, fanning into eddies the air over his head. For what are the comprehensible terrors of man compared with the interlinked terrors and wonders of God? But though the world scouts at us whale hunters, yet does it unwittingly pay us the profoundest homage Yea, an all-abounding adoration, for almost all the tapers, lamps, and candles that burn round the globe burn as before so many shrines to our glory. But look at this matter in other lights, weigh it in all sorts of scales, see what we whalemen are and have been. Why did the Dutch in DeWitt's time have admirals of their whaling fleets? Why did Louis Fourteenth of France, at his own personal expense, fit out whaling ships from Dunkirk and politely invite to that town some score or two of families from our own island of Nantucket? Why did Britain, between the years 1750 and 1788, pay to her whalemen in bounties upwards of one million pounds? And lastly, how comes it that we whalemen of America now outnumber all the rest of the banded whalemen in the world. Sail a navy of upwards of 700 vessels, manned by 18,000 men, yearly consuming 4 million of dollars, the ship's worth at the time of sailing 20 million dollars, and every year importing into our harbors a well-reaped harvest of 7 million dollars. How comes all this if there be not something puissant in sailing? But this is not the half. Look again. I freely assert that the cosmopolite philosopher cannot, for his life, point out one single peaceful influence, which, within the last sixty years, has operated more potentially upon the whole broad world, taken in one aggregate, than the high and mighty business of whaling. One way and another, it has begotten events so remarkable in themselves and so continuously momentous in their sequential issues, that whaling may well be regarded as the Egyptian mother who bore offspring themselves pregnant from her womb. It would be a hopeless, endless task to catalog all these things. Let a handful suffice. For many years past, the whale ship has been the pioneer in ferreting out the remotest and least known parts of the earth. She has explored seas and archipelagos which had no chart, where no cook or Vancouver had ever sailed. If American and European men of war now peacefully ride in once-savage harbors, let them fire salutes to the honor and glory of the whale ship, which originally showed them the way, and first interpreted between them and the savages. They may celebrate as they will the heroes of exploring expeditions, your cooks, your cruisensterns, but I say that scores of anonymous captains have sailed out of Nantucket that were as great and greater than your cook and your cruisenstern. For in their suckerless, empty-handedness, they, in the heathenish sharked waters and by the beaches of unrecorded Haviland Islands, battled with virgin wonders and terrors, that cook with all his marines and muskets would not willingly have dared. All that is made such a flourish of in the old South Sea voyages. Those things were but the lifetime commonplaces of our heroic Nantucketers. Often adventures which Vancouver dedicates three chapters to, these men accounted unworthy of being set down in the ship's common log. Ah, the world! Oh, the world! Until the whale fishery rounded Cape Horn, no commercial but colonial, Scarcely any intercourse but colonial was carried on between Europe and the long line of the opulent Spanish provinces on the Pacific coast. It was the whaleman who first broke through the jealous policy of the Spanish crown, touching those colonies, and, if space permitted, it might be distinctly shown how from those whalemen at last eventuated the liberation of Peru, Chile, and Bolivia from the yoke of old Spain. And the establishment of the eternal democracy in those parts. That great America on the other side of the sphere, Australia, was given to the enlightened world by the whale man. After its first blunderborn discovery by a Dutchman, all other ships long shunned those shores as pestiferously barbarous. But the whale ship touched there. The whale ship is the true mother of that now mighty colony. Moreover, In the infancy of the first Australian settlement, the emigrants were several times saved from starvation by the benevolent biscuit of the whale ship, luckily dropping an anchor in their waters. The uncounted isles of all Polynesia confess the same truth and do commercial homage to the whale ship that cleared the way for the missionary and the merchant, and in many cases carried the primitive missionaries to their first destinations, If that double-bolted land, Japan, is ever to become hospitable, it is the whale ship alone to whom the credit will be due, for already she is on the threshold. But if in the face of all this you still declare that whaling has no aesthetically noble associations connected with it, then am I ready to shiver 50 lances with you there and unhorse you with a split helmet every time? The whale has no famous author. And wailing no famous chronicler, you will say. The whale no famous author and no famous chronicler? Who wrote the first account of our Leviathan? Who but mighty Job? And who composed the first narrative of a whaling voyage? Who but no less a prince than Alfred the Great, who with his own royal pen took down the words from other, the Norwegian whale hunter of those times? And who pronounced our glowing eulogy in Parliament? Who but Edmund Burke? True enough, but then whalemen themselves are poor devils. They have no good blood in their veins. No good blood in their veins? They have something better than royal blood there. The grandmother of Benjamin Franklin was Mary Morrill. Afterwards, by marriage, Mary Folger, one of the old settlers of Nantucket, and the ancestress to a long line of folgers and harpooners, all kith and kin to noble Benjamin, this day darting the barbed iron from one side of the world to the other. Good again, but then I'll confess that somehow whaling is not respectable. Whaling not respectable? Whaling is imperial. By old English statutory law, the whale is declared a royal fish. Oh, that's only nominal. The whale himself has never figured in any grand imposing way. The whale never figured in any grand imposing way. In one of the mighty triumphs given to a Roman general upon his entering the world's capital, the bones of a whale brought all the way from the Syrian coast were the most conspicuous object in the symboled procession. See subsequent chapters for something more on this head. Grant it, since you cite it, but say what you will, there is no real dignity in wailing. No dignity in wailing. The dignity of our calling the very heavens attest. Cetus is a constellation in the south. No more. Drive down your hat in presence of the Czar, and take it off to Quiqueg. No more. I know a man that, in his lifetime, has taken three hundred and fifty whales. I account that man more honorable than that great captain of antiquity who boasted of taking as many walled towns. And as for me, if, by any possibility, there be any as yet undiscovered prime thing in me, if I shall ever deserve any real repute in that small but high-hushed world which I might not be unreasonably ambitious of, if hereafter I shall do anything that, upon the whole, a man might rather have done than to have left undone, if, at my death, my executors, or more properly my creditors, find my precious MSS in my desk, then here I prospectively ascribe all the honor and the glory to Wailing for a whale ship was my Yale College and my Harvard. This has been Moby Dick. Please join us next time as we continue with the adventures of Ishmael and Queequeg, now aboard the Pequod.